Good morning. Good morning, everybody. My name is uh, Matthew Hawkins. I'm one of the pastors here at Desert Springs, and I have an amazing opportunity to conclude this uh, family business series. It's been phenomenal. I've learned a ton. Pastor Caleb definitely um, preached an amazing message last week. If you didn't hear it, um, definitely get online. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a big one. Um, today, I need your help. I need you to do me a massive favor. Anytime I say the word parent, I need you to think mentor. Say with me, mentor. Okay, just a little louder. Say mentor. Perfect. And whenever I say the word student or child, I need you to think mentee. Say the word mentee. All right, just a little louder. Say mentee. Now, whether you are a parent or you're not, um, this is very applicable to you in this way. All of us at some point in life have been, currently are, or will be a mentor or a mentee. <laughs> and um, I don't want those who are, aren't parents yet or their kids are already grown and um, on their own. Um, I don't want you to tune out because this is very, very applicable to you. If you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to land in verses 3 to 10. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3 through 10. If you need a Bible, there's some Bibles on the back tables, um, or you can follow along with us on the screen. I'm going to simply read verses 8 through 10 for our hearing. Verses 8 through 10, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 through 10. And then I'm going to share um, a quick story. Are you guys ready? Yes. Oh, man, come on. Are you guys ready? Yes. Okay, wonderful. That's great. Ephesians chapter 2, um, verse 8 through 10, it says, For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Ephesians chapter 2, 8 through 10. Pray with me really quick. God, thank you so much for this word. I pray that you open up our ears, open up our hearts, that we might hear from you. Every single person um, under the sound of my voice needs to hear what you have to say this morning, whether they're on the mentor side or they're on the mentee side, whether they're on the parent side or the kid side, we need to hear from you. We give you praise in Jesus' name, amen. Quick story, my freshman year of college, actually my freshman year of high school, I can talk about college at some other time, my freshman year of high school was a train wreck. It's terrible. The reason why it was so terrible is because I had no clue who I was as an individual. 
I got into uh, my high school, first day of school, and I felt so much pressure to be in a certain category. If I was gonna be the athlete, if I were gonna be the smart kid, or if I were gonna be the ladies' man, I, I, I felt pressured, um, just natural environmental pressure to fall into one of these categories. And it wasn't until the end of my freshman year that I found the answer. I found out what I was gonna be and what my identity would be in high school. And this happened during graduation or during commencement. You know, what happens when they cross the stage and they get all of these awards. You have wonderful, faithful song. Well, before they did that and they handed off, you know, the traditional diploma, there were all these special awards. You know, 10 varsity letters to the top athletes of the school. You know, I, I, I saw how all the parents clapped and were super excited about those 10 varsity letters. And I, I looked at their faces and I, I just drank that in. I was like, ooh, you know, maybe I can be that. That's, that's, that's great. 10 varsity letters. I'll be the top athlete. And then they gave an award to the arts group, the, the, the artsy students, like he's the best singer, and she was the, 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 the uh, best cello player. It was, it, was, it, was, it was great, and then everybody would clap for that, and all the parents would be all excited, you know. And then there was another award for, for the student who, who gave the most. They, they gave the most service hours, you know. They were like the, 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 the one that went to senior homes and went to homeless shelters and, and went to read to students at preschool. And so then everybody clapped for them and woo, it was great. And, and after all this was over, I realized what I was gonna be during my high school tenure, through my high school career. I decided that I would focus on being just this one thing, the most respected student athlete that could sing, play the bass, while scoring the most goals and having the hottest girlfriend that went with me on service trips to Romania, Africa, and Thailand. Just that one thing I would focus on. And this one thing would get me into the best school, the best college, and I would do it all over again. <laughs> I have been a parent for the past 10 years, and I've been a pastor focused on students, teens, junior high folks for the past 11 years. When I say I've seen it all, I've seen it all. I've pastored kids in the hood. I've, I've pastored kids in the hills. I've pastored smart kids. I've pastored dumb kids. I've pastored... <laughs> Pastor athletes, pastor every single type of kid you could think of, all right? Kids from all types of backgrounds and homes, living situations. Kids didn't know who their parents were. Kids that, that um, had broken homes, so to speak. Kids that had the wonderful Christian home. Kids that checked all the boxes on paper. Kids that didn't even have a piece of paper to check any boxes. They didn't even know what boxes to check. And the number one thing that I've seen over 11 years, the number one challenge 
of every student that I've come encounter with is that they have no clue who they are. They don't know what their identity is. The same identity crisis that I had my freshman year of high school was the same thing that I've seen over and over and over again. And if you're honest, grown man and grown woman, if you're honest, you've probably had the same challenge in your adult life, if you're honest. The only cure, the only way to find out who you truly are, whether you're a Jesus follower or you're not a Jesus follower, what I submit to you today is the only way to find out who you are is to know who created you, is to know your maker. I know that's not really exciting for some of you. You didn't get excited right there. That didn't make you go, woo, yeah. (laughs) But the truth of the matter is, if I have no clue who I am in God, there's no way that I can parent my kid. If I have no clue what my identity is in Christ, there's no way that I can lead a child or lead a mentee to something greater than themselves. According to a recent study, our best case scenario inside of the evangelical church, inside of this Christian community, our best case scenario for students that were raised in a Christian home that eventually graduated from college, the best case scenario for them to come back to a Bible-believing church, whether it's their home church or whether it's somebody else's church. The best stat that's out there is about 45 to 50%, which means well over, in a lot of cases, 40 to 50% of our students that go to Sunday school and, and, and they listen to cool youth pastor like me and, and, and they go to all the camps and, 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 and they check all the Jesus boxes. The best case scenario for them not to come back and actually live a Christ-proclaiming life with a group of Jesus followers for all the ones that are not coming back to anybody's church, it's about 60%. As parents, as mentors, as coaches, as teachers, as leaders, what I'm submitting to you today is the reason why that stat is probably true today, right now, is because there are more talking Moms and dads, and I'm throwing myself in there. They're more talking moms and dads and less living moms and dads. If I had to pick on myself for a second, I do more at times talking about the game than I am actually on the field showing my kids what it looks like to live a Christ-centered, Jesus-following life. If you think for a second, the thing that you know really well, 
What is that thing that you know extremely well? Some of you say, hey, man, I'm a great plumber. Or some of you might say, man, I can, I can teach anything. Whatever you think you know extremely well, my question to you is, how did you learn it? I've been trying to, to, to learn golf, and I've been hearing how to play golf, and I've, I've watched golf on YouTube a ton, how to swing, how to get a swing like Tiger. I've watched it a ton. But when I actually made some ground was when somebody, an actual person, showed me in real time and in real life how to swing a golf club. Now, if you saw my golf swing, you wouldn't know that a real person actually <laughs> taught me how to swing. But if you think about it, anything that you've learned or anything that you've, you've committed to memory and it's actually penetrated your heart, it's something that has been shown to you in real time by a real person in real life. The same is true as you parent children and your hope is that they will be Christ proclaiming Jesus followers. I am begging you, I am pleading with you. It is not gonna come by talking. It's not gonna come by pushing them to this and pushing them to that and being an Uber driver from this thing to that thing. It's by them seeing you, mom, you, dad, you, mentor, actually live out the truth of God's word. If you think about it, that's what we needed to actually know who Jesus was. He actually came to this planet and revealed himself in a real tangible way. I'll read it. Ephesians chapter two, verse three. We too previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. Verse four of Ephesians chapter two says, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us made us alive with Christ. Even though we were dead in trespasses, you are saved by grace. Christianity cannot be a spectator sport. The long line of spectators is already full. The short, short line of those who are actually in the game, showing what it looks like to be committed to Jesus, not just at church in front of churchy people, but actually showing what it looks like in the rhythms of a regular day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, what does mama and what does daddy actually look like in response to the gospel? How has dad reshaped his life in light of Ephesians chapter two? If I can push it. We've clearly seen the effects of teenagers and junior high students and elementary students not having an identity in something bigger than themselves. But what does the Bible have to say about this? This is big. The writer here compares what we were by nature 
with what we are by grace. I'll say it again. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter two, describing what we were in the past by nature and what we are today by grace. If you're taking notes, you might wanna write this one down. You weren't picked to be a parent because your amazing gifts. You were picked because of his amazing grace. I'll say it again. For some of you guys that gotta hear things 10 times like me, you were not picked to be a parent, to be a leader, to be a mentor, to be the boss. You weren't picked because of your amazing gifts and talents. You were picked because of his amazing grace. Ephesians chapter two, verse five says, he made us alive. It says, he showed his love toward us. All are in a condition of spiritual blindness and none of us are capable of getting it all right. If you have a mom or a dad that thinks that they are the fourth member of the Trinity and they are not in desperate need of God's grace, then you have a terrible parent. Ooh, help me, Jesus. I'm talking to myself here. If you have a mom or a dad that approaches the situation, if you have a mentor, if you have a leader that approaches every situation as if their message, their big talk has nothing to do with their desperate need of Jesus, that's going to be a, a horrible company to be a part of, a horrible household to be a part of, because he thinks that his stuff never stinks. She thinks her stuff never stinks. They got it all together. Have you ever been around somebody who thought they had it all together? Was that a fun time? Did you look forward to hang out with them? They always had the right answers. They were always right. Nobody could tell them anything. Whether you think you're that person or not, let's just come a little closer. If Jesus came to save us from ourselves, but you think that you didn't need to be saved, what does that make you? If Jesus came all the way to earth to save us, and how did he do it? Chose to die on a cross, to be spit on, to be mocked, to be disrespected, had all the power to overcome every single person that spit on him and ridiculed him and talked about him, but he never used the power that he had to get back at them. He took it all on the cross, on himself, because we needed it. Says Ephesians chapter two, we were messed up. We were, here we go, mom, dad, Matthew, leader, mentor. The best way that I can parent in light of Ephesians chapter two, verse three through five, is to be very clear 
always, when I'm communicating with my kid or when I'm communicating with my mentee, to always have in mind that the same grace that they need is the same grace that I am currently benefiting from. When you lose sight of your desperate need of grace, you get cocky. (laughs) You get prideful. The greatest hope for any teen is to be in relationship with a mentor who focuses less on their full list of laws and rules and focuses more on their gospel-shaped heart of love and need of Jesus. By comparing what we were by nature with what we are by grace gives us an honest ground to stand on. Now, some of you guys are asking, all right, that's cool, man. I got that. But what are the tools that I can use to actually parent, to actually mentor? Like, like how does that work? Well, before we talk about the good tools, let's talk about the bad ones. My go-to, I'll put myself out here. My go-to as a parent has been in the past some of the most popular tools that parents use in modern day history. Now, none of these will be familiar to you because you're perfect. But for the rest of us, one of my go-tos in the past has been shame. How do you use the tool of shame to parent? Well, you say things like this. Or I have said things like this. Oh, guys, hurry up. Clean the house. Your mom is coming home. And when she comes home, you don't want to stress her out like you did the last time. It's because of y'all and your messy rooms and your messy bathroom that mom is going to be so overwhelmed. Just hurry up. Clean up. Y'all mess stuff up all the time. That's my attempt to shame them into behavior modification. Do this, do it like I'm telling you to, and hopefully you're gonna do it because I'm shaming you into doing it. I'm making you hopefully feel bad, guilty, because mom was mad because you messed up. Fear. Hey, little Johnny, if, if you don't do this, then you're going to die. <laughs> if you touch that fire, it's going to burn you. Your skin's going to come off. It's going to be bad. Stop playing on the steps. If you play on the steps, you're going to break your neck. It's going to be bad. <laughs> None of y'all do this one, but... Maybe it's just me. If I got to say that one more time, I promise you I'm going to come up them stairs and we're going to be moving some furniture up in here. We're going to get that paddle and it's going to be a problem. I'm trying to bring fear into their minds so their behavior can change. Here's one. Rewards. 
It's a good tool, right? Hey, little Sarah, if you do your best for the next 90 days, at the end of these 90 days, I promise you, I'm going to get you that bike. If you're nice to your sister and, and, and you clean your room and, 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 and you check all these boxes that I have for you, whatever your boxes are in your household. Yeah, boxes. <laughs> That's beautiful. God bless your heart. That's beautiful. <laughs> You check the boxes. <laughs> then I'll get you the bike, or I'll get you the TV, or I'll get you the iPhone, or I'll pay your way through college. If you do, if you do, if you do. Be nice to your sister, and I'll get you. What does that equal at the end of the 90 days? You're out $100, because you paid for whatever that thing was. They probably negotiated it up a little bit, and now you're paying 150 maybe. You've modified the behavior for 90 days, but then after that, they go back to whatever they were doing because it never penetrated the heart. It was about control. It was about getting the right answer. It was about getting the right outcome. It had nothing to do with a transformed, changed heart. didn't have to do with them being nice to Sarah and loving Sarah and caring about Sarah. It had everything to do with me being nice to myself so I can get my gift. And then I'm mean to Sarah the next 90 days. The opposite of all of that is a strategic, prayerful, intentional mindset and heart posture towards meeting their needs at the root, at the very bottom root issue, which is their heart. Ephesians chapter two says, we were born messed up. And it took Jesus Christ to literally change our hearts. We needed to be saved from ourselves. And the only way that we could be changed wasn't behavior modification, wasn't a performance review. Performance reviews doesn't change any hearts. Just makes you hopefully stay out of your boss's way. The true transformation in the heart only comes through Jesus, only Jesus can change somebody's heart. No matter how well you parent, no matter how many boxes you check, they gonna do whatever they wanna do. Just like you did whatever you wanted to do. But it's at the heart level. It's at the very heart of the issue. What, what, what does that mean, dude? Like, I, I don't know what that means. Like, what does that mean? All right. It says, Ephesians chapter 2, 4 through 7, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us 
with him in heavenly places. For by grace, you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. What needs to happen? They need to see Jesus in a real, tangible way. Because Jesus Christ is the only one that can transform their hearts. But how do you get to the hearts? You're not Jesus. You didn't die on the cross. Well, we got to start asking some heart-level questions that speak to who they are as an individual. Well, what does that mean, man? I don't, I don't know what heart-level questions are. Well, here's one. It's a great heart-level Question, let's say little Johnny hit his sister. Boom, hits his sister. Now, I could use fear. <laughs> I can threaten little Johnny. I can use shame. I can use rewards. Or I can ask little Johnny some heart-revealing questions. Number one, Hey, man, what's going on? I'm not coming to you and saying, I already know what's going on. I'm not going to give all the answers to you. I'm going to help you do some heart-level work. Four-year-old Johnny, 44-year-old Johnny, doesn't matter. Hey, man, what's going on? Give them the opportunity to share their experience from their perspective. Another good one. There's a couple more, but I'll just give you another good one. Help me understand why you did it. That goes right to the heart. Little Johnny hit his sister. What happened, little Johnny? She took my truck. Help me understand why you did that, man. Because it's mine. It's my truck. Don't belong to her. It's mine. You know, my, my truck. What, what did he just show you? He just said... That if somebody takes my stuff, I'm going to hit them. <laughs> I will hit them. That reveals a broken heart. Now, parent Matthew sometimes would be like, oh, bad little Johnny. Let's go get the belt. No, 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 that's bad. No, don't do that. No. <laughs> let's keep going. Let's, let's get to the heart. All right? Help me understand. He answers the question. Great. Look, man, I'm going to be honest with you. In Ephesians chapter 2, and I don't say all this, but this is basically, you know. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 2, I learned that I was in desperate need of Jesus. Like, I'm messed up too. Sometimes I like hitting people, or I want to hit people. Sometimes I get angry. I get frustrated. I think it's all about me. I think everything belongs to me. I do that sometimes too. What did I just do there? I'm not Lord over him. I'm not God. He's God. I just pointed him back to Jesus. Sometimes I'm messed up too, man. I'm disrespectful too. And I, I need God to help me when I get really frustrated. I think you might too. It's a possibility you might too, little Johnny. Now, after that conversation, little Johnny's not like, oh, I want to believe in Jesus. And he doesn't fall on his knees and say, Jesus, save me, please. No, that's not going to happen. It could, but I haven't seen that with my little Johnnies. 
It could, but I haven't seen it in my own narrative. I have to have these conversations over and over and over and over again. And I have to continue to reshape every situation around the gospel and how daddy desperately needs Jesus and how little Johnny desperately needs Jesus. And it's not based on daddy's works and it's not based on little Johnny's works. It's based on what Jesus has done on the cross that gives us the ability to even change. In 10,000 conversations, in 20,000 conversations, in 10,000 prayers, in 20,000 prayers, and constantly surrounding little Johnny with real life examples of what it looks like to follow Jesus and be humble and be honest and be patient. Eventually, God willing, his heart will begin to change. Not based on dad not based on mom, but based on what Jesus is doing through dad and through mom in his heart. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. What does that mean? We are his masterpiece. He's the one that's painting this entire thing. He's the one that's shaping this entire heart. If you were able to change a person's heart, Jesus Christ didn't have to come. Now, change behaviors, I think you got that down. I can change some behaviors in my household. I come in the house, and I'm like, everybody need to be quiet, because I said so. And I can pump fear, and I can, I can make the house look like what I want it to look like. But in reality, I'm just shaping them to be smarter sinners. Ooh, dad's tone sounds really angry today. Let's look good, because dad's tone sounds a little aggressive. Mom seems like she's in one of those moods. Let's look good. Let's check boxes. Behavior modification, easy. I don't even need to preach about that. It's tons of books about behavior modification. But I love when scripture says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? What is the gain if they get to the right college and they get the right husband and they get a beautiful wife and they get the best life and the best car and the best everything, but their soul never changed who they really are never was transformed. They never met Jesus. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll end on this. Some practical, practical how-tos. I was reading about this lady, this lady named Clara Frazier. 1930s, an elderly woman, Clara Frazier, recruited a group of her friends to pray for teenagers attending Gainesville High School in Texas. This was the start of 
what is known to be young life. Young life is a nonprofit that goes directly into schools to present the gospel, to present Jesus, to point high school students to Jesus that would have never otherwise heard about Jesus. It's a nonprofit that strategically uses fun skits and laughter. We're actually partnered with Young Life here at Desert Springs. Uses all these great natural tools to win the hearts of students. This lady, Clara Frazier, just reached out to the homies, reached out to her friends, older lady, started praying for high school. Eventually, you can read the rest of the story online. Young Life, if I can remember this correctly, reached 2.5 million students last year with the gospel. Because one lady, and it wasn't none of their kids, wasn't none of her kids, chose to pray. Practically speaking, what should I do? Bishop, after your talk, what should I do? Pastor Matthew, let's pray. Let's get some people together and let's pray. There is power in prayer. What am I praying for? God, give me the words, give me the mind, give me the perspective to be able to talk to and speak to the heart of my child, my teenager, my grown child. Give me the words, give me the ability. God, wherever they are, just reveal yourself to them. Another thing that was a part of the Young Life strategy that I love, and it's all in the gospel, as this, as this nonprofit begins to explode and grow, there's this cool thing that they do constantly. It's called contact work. <laughs> it's an amazing concept, contact work. It's basically spending time outside of a formal setting like this with students on their turf and get to know them, build relationship. Mom, dad, how in the heck are you supposed to reach the hearts of your teenager, your junior high student? How does this work? Outside of these walls, outside of homework, outside of all the boxes that we want them to check, let's get on their level, get on their turf, and get to know them. I already know my kid, I've been knowing him for 15 years. You might want to get to know them today. Because if they're anything like I was when I was 14, I had no clue who I was. How do you get to know them? Ask them what they like. Ask them what was something that made them laugh today. What was something that you thought was so ridiculous that made you mad today? And I know it's going to be corny when you get started. Like, why are you asking me all these questions? This is stupid. But this is soul work. So you got to find and pray for creative ways 
to penetrate the heart. Now, some of you guys, some of the things that I've said might bring up regret. Woulda, coulda, shouldas. Let me read this, and then I'll pray for all of us. This is by a guy named Paul Tripp. He's a pastor, author. This comes out of his book, 14 Gospel Principles That Can Radically Change Your Family. Living in regret drags the past into the present. Living in regret even drags the past into the future. And for all of its remembering, regret can be tragically forgetful. What is it that regret tends to forget? Regret tends to forget the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. On the cross, Jesus bore the entire burden of our guilt and our shame. On the cross, Jesus purchased by the shedding of his blood our complete forgiveness, past, present, and future. This means that we can boldly come to him in our failure, receive his forgiveness, deposit our regret at his feet, and move on to new and better ways of doing what he has called us to do as parents. <sighs> 